not the better half. But I did get, I, you know, my, my maiden name was Mackenzie, and I really loved my last name. But I didn't realize what a blessing couch would be. Being a therapist, it's the best name ever. <laughs> The best name ever. And it took me until I was licensed until I realized that. I don't know what I was thinking. So it's the best name ever. So couch counseling, reducing the stigma of mental health by providing hope. I can't wait to talk this morning. So here we are. So I just want to dive right in. It's so good to be here. Our home away from home. And we really love being here and the opportunity to talk about these things that so need to be talked about. So I, and I think I'm preaching to the choir. So I hope I can give you something new this morning. I've got a ton of handouts out there on the table. So please don't leave um, without one if, you, if this is new information for you. So really glad to be here with you this morning. I want you to turn to 1 Kings 19.5. We're not going to get there for quite a few minutes. But you know how it is when someone says to turn some, to something and then they already are there, and you can't even get there yet, and they're already on to the next thing, I wanted to give you a a heads up. (laughs) How's that? Praise be to God and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercies, he has given us new birth into a living hope, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4. I just wanted to start with that because he is our living hope, living, not dead, not, be, not before, not something that we just have to look forward to, but we've got him here with us. And that's so important when we talk about mental health issues because it can feel like he's nowhere around, that he is our living hope. We're going to talk about stigma this morning. Stigma is a false or negative stereotype. It's a judgment of what we might fear, what we don't understand, or have had a negative experience with. We all have faced stigma at one point or another in our life, and that perspective becomes your stigma. If we we give it or if we receive it even, we're getting it from someone else or we're giving it to someone else. But reducing the stigma of mental health specifically starts with really finding our own stigma, right? It's growth on both ends. And when I was teaching at Western Seminary, I had my students who were up-and-coming marriage and family therapists or, or pastors who actually wanted to know more about how to help people, um, like you are this morning, how to help people with mental health issues. Um, I had them do this exercise or they were looking, either closing their eyes, and you can do that this morning, or you can just look at that hallway. But they were picturing a long, dark hallway, and coming down that hallway was a person or a type of person that scared them, annoyed them, made them uncomfortable. And they were coming down the hallway and coming around that corner, and they could start to see the outline of who they were, And as they walked closer, they could see the type of person they were. And that revealed their stigma. And you're probably having some light bulb moments now, maybe. I'm doing this pretty quickly. But it shocked a lot of them. I didn't have them share who who or what type of person that was. But it was really surprising. And I had them go home and journal about it. Because that's the work they needed to do. In order to help people, we have to work on the kind of people we're scared of. 
And it usually comes from their experience with them, their family history, how they've been told about a certain type of people. Um, but they needed to work on that if they were going to go out into the highways and byways and care for those people. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning, is what kind of stigmas we might have. In order to care for people, we got to lay those down, right? So um, we need to know our biases that shape those reactions. It can also shape our relationships with people and even our theology. Can I give you a little quiz this morning to go a little further with that? Do you guys mind? You didn't know you were going to come to church and have a quiz. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's the teacher in me. <laughs> okay. This is from the National Association of Mental Illness. And this, this organization has been around a lot of time, long time. They're fabulous. Um, they started out to um, help families that had um, loved ones with schizophrenia, but now they've broadened their base to just really help people in general um, with mental illness. But mental illness has become a stigma. stigma. Now it's mental health, helping people with mental health issues. But this, that's not going to go away for a very long time. Um, but anyways, number one, can you read that okay? I'll still say it, but I think people with mental illness, A, need to snap out of it. B, did something wrong to cause it. C, need our love and support. D, are sometimes faking it. What do you think? Yeah, right. Okay. But going back to A, need, need to snap out of it. Do you guys remember Mary Inglebright? She made a fortune off of that stigma. <laughs> snap out of it. Um, if they could snap out of it, they would. Right? We need to remember that. And then did something wrong to cause it. That's such an old stigma. And, but unfortunately, that's still really in the church. Not enough faith. Don't you have enough faith to get better? Um, and boy, historically, um, the exorcisms in the church. When I was um, first um, in, in graduate school, we would watch videos on the exorcisms on schizophrenic patients. It didn't help. Okay? Uh, caused so much harm. And then the D are sometimes faking it. Teens um, get this a lot. You're just making it up, just trying to get attention. That is a stigma. Um, they face depression in high school, and maybe you have too. There's a lot of pressure, and even more now with social media. So that, that's a stigma. Number two, which of the following is not true, not true about stigma? A, it makes people feel alienated or less than. B, it's not really a big problem for people with mental health conditions. C, it prevents people from seeking help for symptoms. And D, it makes people fear judgment if they share their story. What do you think? B, good. See, you guys are so good. Um, you're right. It's not really a big problem. Of course it is, right? Or I wouldn't be here today. Um, all those reasons, right? Um, it does make people feel alienated or less than. They feel uh, worth, worthless, um, especially when stigma is put on them. It does prevent people from getting help, and it makes them fear judgment um, if they share their story. They're really scared to let people in and know because of the judgment. Okay, lastly, number three, if someone in your family is diagnosed with a mental health condition, you should, A, treat them differently than you used to, 
B, distance yourself from them. C, feel sorry for them. Or D, listen and show support. Right, D, absolutely. But I think A through C are true because we don't know what to do. So we're going to talk about that today. What is so sad about this is that so many struggle with mental health issues. They already have distorted thoughts about themselves, about their self-images. So when they, when they face stigmas like the ones we talked about, it just reinforces their shame. They go further and further into isolation, and their issues get worse. And we overcome the, the enemy's plans by our lives by, by what? The blood of the lamb and by the, the word of our testimony. But we as the church can block their testimonies. We can get in the way if we further use stigmas on these people. So that's why it's so critical that we don't become barriers to their mental health. We, we want to become helpful and get them into their testimonies and becoming, um, becoming, becoming thriving in their life and overcoming the enemy's plan in their life. So a little history for you um, in terms of mental health over the years. It dates back to as far as 1899 when we had our first organizing of diagnoses in the mental health field. It was paranoia and manic depression, which now is um, two, bipolar one and bipolar two. And then you, uh, you all might have heard of Sigmund Freud. He came on the scene not too far after that. And boy, he gets a lot of stigma himself, doesn't he? Um, but to his credit, he wrote about an area of the brain at the turn of the century that we're just beginning to understand now on a neuroscience level, the unconscious or the energy and the quantum level as a, a, a new gal on the scene, Dr. Caroline Leaf, is, is just beginning to write about. She's a Christian neuroscient, neuroscientist. And as I often say in life, we know what we know until we know better. And isn't that the truth in any science, right? Someone who was deeply disturbed himself, clearly in 1939, Hitler, he had 270,000 people with mental illness killed in the name of racial purity. Horrific stigma. And just seven years later, in 1946, the, the Congress passed the National Mental Health Act for the first time in history. We woke up in the United States, leading to the National Institute of Mental Health, which, st which still operates today, which I used a lot of information for one of the handouts out there. So since then, the deinstitutionalization of treatment happened, which is unfortunate in a lot of ways, and research on medication for treatment theories and organizations have abounded. So we've learned, we've unlearned, we've learned again. That's the process of change, right? We need to see the need, see the people, see the need. And, you know, sometimes mental illness is obvious, sometimes it's not. We take the, take the number one diagnosis in our country, anxiety. Not, maybe not a surprise to many, many of you. There are a variety of symptoms that make up anxiety, from physical to emotional to thought patterns. And some, some individuals look anxious, and you might have noticed that. You can see it on their face, the look of fear, the physical expression of wringing their hands or fidgeting. They can't keep still. And they may or may not tell you about their constant worries or, or how it's getting in the way of their lives. And that's one version. Another version is a blank face. You can't even tell. 
Um, their anxiety is what I call behind the eyes. They keep it hidden, but it's still anxiety. It's only expressed, though, when safe. And these people face stigma. Don't be anxious. Pray more. Fear not. All stigma statements in the church that don't help them just causes them to isolate. We need to see the need and not rush the person because of our own discomfort. Maybe our anxiety about their anxiety, right? We can't control them. And even though in Philippians 4, 6, it's absolutely true that we're to be anxious for nothing and by prayer and in supplication, submit our requests to God and the peace of, of God will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's absolutely true. I quote it. I pray it all the time. But we just don't always get to know the when and the how of it, right? Many individuals are on a journey to get there. We all are. <laughs> it's all a journey. And as Tilhard de Chardin, a Jesuit priest, prayed, above all, learn to trust the... Let me make sure I don't mess it up because I just said his name right. Hold on. <laughs> above all, learn to trust the slow work of God. I love that. Above all, learn to trust the slow work of God. It's his work. It's his timing. It's not ours. And that's especially true for others. Sometimes we want to rush people to healing because that's our discomfort. It's not ours. It's theirs, and it's God's, and that can be hard sometimes, especially on a Sunday morning when we just want to hear fine when we ask someone how they're doing. Rarely are we fine. That's not even a feeling word. <laughs> what if we actually use feeling words? Depression and anxiety, those aren't feeling words either, right? Those are diagnoses. What if we actually use feeling words on Sunday mornings? That would make people linger, right, and get to the real stuff. Depression is another common struggle for many. It can be scary to, to, people, to talk to people who have lost hope and fearing they might contemplate suicide. It doesn't cause them to think about suicide if you act, ask. That's a, that's a stigma, misnomer. What does, though, is if you talk, to about, talk about other people who have committed suicide or their actual plans. Don't do that. Suicidal plans are a contagion. I think I've mentioned that here before. And we always have to be on guard with what we allow into our minds. Be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Shane and I went to a training at a, the Amon Clinic in Walnut Creek. You may have heard of Dan Amon. He's a forerunner in psychiatry for taking pictures of the organ he treats. In the training, he saw um, we saw a, vi a video brain image of a person sleeping and the washing of the mind during sleep. It was fascinating. It proves that the mind is processing and being cleansed at night. Sleep really is sacred, and that's how his mercies are new every morning. Science really is catching up with Scripture. Isn't that cool? Science is catching up with Scripture, as Dr. Carolyn Leaf writes. So you want to see an image of a depressed brain? Okay, here we go. Didn't know you'd see this on a Sunday morning. <laughs> well, Pastor Mike, you might. He's progressive. I love that. So a healthy brain, and what I mean by healthy and... Um, this is the underside of a brain. So someone taking a, a functional MRI, this up. Um, and that is, that is smooth. There's no holes, meaning there's no lack of blood flow. And um, 
the depressed brain, as you can see, there are holes, there are lack of blood flow, and someone who's depressed can't make decisions very well. They have a hard time getting out of bed. That front part of the brain um, up top is where your executive functioning is, where you make decisions, you can organize. So if you ask someone how they're doing and they say, I don't know because I can't even make that decision, that's a depressed person. So they, they, they're not faking it. They actually can't make that decision even to answer you. So they need help. And the traditional treatment for depression is medication and psychotherapy. And the longer you wait to get that treatment, the, the longer that brain's going to look like that and worse. So a lot of times people are afraid of medication for a lot of reasons, and I understand that. There's a lot of reasons to be that way. But with accurate treatment, with accurate help, that brain can go back to the normal brain. Why would you wait? Why would you wait? What are the causes? Oh, and my, let me share this. Dr. Eamon's research shows that 51% of the population has or will have a mental, ish, mental health issue in the lifetime. So if you have struggled, you're the normie. <laughs> Those of you that know recovery terms. 51% are going to struggle with some form of mental health issue. And there's a range, right? But you're the normie. The other 41%, 49% of you, I can't count. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, my, it's my holes in my brain. Um, the other 49% of you need to be patient with the rest of us. Right? <laughs> but the rest of us are normies, right? It's okay to not be okay, as Sheila Walsh's book says. What are the causes of mental illness? There's a theory in this next slide um, that makes a lot of sense to me. It's a biopsychosocial model. I know that's a big word, but it combines three different hoops. The top one um, is the, the biology, which can predispose someone. And if you can't see it quite, you could always take a picture of it that zooms it in a bit. Um, these are the, the top... The biology um, predisposes someone to a crisis or difficulty. It's not necessarily a, a prediction as much as a backwards glance. When you have something that, you're, that someone in your family had, then you make sense of it. It doesn't mean because someone in your family had something, you're going to get it. What it means is you need to have good coping skills because someone in your family had that. So, so even for parents, you need to create good coping skills for your kids because you know something has been in the background. That's always important. We can't assume we won't have struggles in life. We can't assume we can handle the stress that fills our mind um, through choices, media, toxins, relationships, grief. I mean, look at, look at all of these, even within the, the social realm, um, family circumstances, school, trauma, and, and in the psychological realm, self-esteem, there's all kinds of things that can that come on us in life because we live in this world, this fallen world. But our responsibility is to, is to really learn how to handle it. Um, uh, people say that kids are resilient and it, it's like chalk on a chalk, fingernails on a chalkboard. It's our job as parents to create the building blocks of resiliency so that they can handle the things that come their way, not assume they can handle it. That's our job. 
as parents and as and as a church. So that's that's one theory of what causes mental illness, what can predispose it. But it's not it's it's not necessarily something we can't break. Okay, even you know as they talk about curses to the third and fourth generation, we can work with that because now we know how, and we can break those cycles. We really can, but we have to work at it. It's a partnership. So meeting the need, meeting the need. In First Kings, I'm so excited to talk about this. Um, in First Kings, here you can pull up the scripture that I told you about. In First Kings, we had the account of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And you may know this gripping story so well. King Ahab was looking high and low for Elijah the prophet because there was a severe famine. And Jezebel, you know, that terrorist, had killed off the Lord's prophets except for him, except for Elijah. And Elijah shows up in 1 Kings 18. He was led by the Lord to the people, to the people um, that the Lord to tell the people that the Lord was a true God. He was so courageous to go back. But God gave him that courage, right? And Elijah boldly sets the scene with the 450 prophets of Baal and him, the only prophet of God left. And he sets this challenge. You call on the name of your gods, and I'm going to call on the name of the Lord. That's the scene, and the God who answers by fire, he's God. It's a nail-biter, right? I mean, we think that, sh- that there's some great, you know, superhero shows. Read the Bible <laughs> out loud to your kids. I mean, it's pretty graphic. So, really, read it today. It's, it's better than any show you're going to go catch up on on Netflix today. <laughs> read this first and see how they compare. <laughs> I do have to read the, ruin the end for you just for time. But um, guess who God answered by fire? Do you think it was the, the gods, the, the prophets of Baal, their God? No way. It was our God, right? It was, the, it was the Lord God. Of course it was. And at the end, all fell prostrate and cried to the Lord. He's God, the Lord. He is God. And then, of course, God shows off and provides rain because there's famine in the land. Of course, And he drenched the dry land, and the hearts of the people were thirsty for the one true God. And, of course, Elijah was right. But then King Ahab did something strange. People, you know, there's no end to trouble. (laughs) That's a mentor of mine says. He told that terrorist. Now, why is he going to talk to the terrorist after he just saw that? That just ticks me off. Why would you go talk to a terrorist? But he did. He told the terrorist, who had, he was probably just showing off, probably. He, he told Jezebel, who had murdered the prophets of the Lord, and then she goes after Elijah. That's one of those moments that you just wonder, what was he thinking? Could you have just, but he didn't. And then, he, and, and then when Elijah heard about that, he ran. He ran. Does that surprise you that Elijah ran, the one who courageously stood up to 450 prophets who saw the fire of God right in front of him? Because he asked. He asked for the fire. It doesn't surprise me. 
He heard of Jezebel's threat to kill him, Elijah did, and he ran into the wilderness, isolating without any support system, and found himself under a bush tree like this. Now, that doesn't even look like it's going to provide shade. (laughs) Alone and in despair. That's trauma. He was in trauma. When you're running for your life, he was afraid he was going to die. And the area in your brain, I have to go back to the brain, the amygdala, it sends out a fight-or-flight signal, and you become tunnel-visioned in that state. And in that weakened state of having given all the fight he had, he chose the flight. He'd already fought, so he chose the flight. And honestly, I think we can all relate. He was tired. And I don't know the timing, but the first month after an event where you fear for your life, it's called acute stress disorder which can turn into PTSD after a month. But treating acute stress disorder in that first month is so important. Again, getting treatment in that first month, otherwise it's going to dig into the brain and, and be called PTSD, and that's so much harder to treat, so much harder. It's a longer road of healing. And he prayed a very depressed prayer. He wanted to die. He was hopeless. And when you're in that acute stress, you want the pain to stop. Now, I wasn't there to assess him, (laughs) but guess who was? An angel. And now that you're there in that 1 Kings 19.5b, let's go there. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head were some bread, with some bread baked over hot coals, and that must have smelled so good. And a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time. He followed up and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank and was strengthened by the food as he traveled to hear the whisper of God. An angel of the Lord. Look at what the angel provided. He provided touch. He wasn't afraid to touch him. A jar of water. Bread baked over hot coals, rest, and encouragement for the long journey ahead. Eat again, because you're not strong enough yet. And then as you, as you read on, God provided himself, his presence, and another prophet to help him, Elisha, who would, who would be the future support, the one that he would hand over the ministry to. God is so practical. He provides He provided the angel to begin with. Then he provided himself. Then he provided the support going forward. That is just like God. He never leaves us alone. He provides people to help us get to God. When you're struggling with a mental health issue, you can't get to God alone because you don't know if he's there. You don't feel him. And that's... That's just where they're at, but it doesn't, it's not where they're going to end up if they have people that represent God like the angel. And that's what we can be for them. Being encouraging, having that safe touch, a jar of water, warm bread, and encouraging them with friendship. That's what a mentor can be. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, as Proverbs 13, 12 says, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. And I think it's better than that tree. <laughs> Mentoring is an ongoing need in churches, but 
what, what made Jesus remarkable to others is that he came with grace and truth. That's what made him look so different. And if you tend to be a little lopsided in the, in the more truth than grace or more grace than truth, then that's your growth area. You got to work on it. You have some growing to do. And then you'll be a really good mentor to someone else who's in, who's in crisis. So what do you say when you notice someone who's struggling and you think it, you think it might be a mental health issue? And it, it does depend, of course, on your relationship with them. But you can certainly talk to someone who does know um, how to care for them or knows them better. But don't, don't not say anything for sure. So what to say? You want to ask. Ask a question. I'm concerned. I've noticed. You talk about being tired a lot or that your marriage is in trouble or that you're using the phrase hopeless. And then keep, keep them safe. Are you thinking about suicide? Have you thought about a plan to kill yourself? I'm talking about suicide because this time of year, it's really common, um, terribly common, unfortunately. And we, we want to we know how to handle these things because it, it, it's not, we don't want to just treat it as if it's a passing thought because a lot of times those passing thoughts become a plan, okay? Don't forget um, the, um, about the plan because you, you want to know what that plan is so you can get rid of any items regarding that plan. Research reveals that talking about suicide directly actually reduces the risk, even though um, a lot of people think that, that if you say the words suicide or, or killing themselves, then that will actually increase their thoughts. It doesn't. You want to use it, um, and that will help them to kind of come back to reality at times. The, the trauma-depressed or anxious or, or manic brain um, actually has more energy. So you, bringing them back to reality helps them. Letting them know that they're important and valuable and needed helps them to choose life. Now, a lot of people have the courage to say those things to people that are, that are struggling so much, but we need to do that in the church. Just like if someone were to fall down in the lobby and you saw signs of a heart attack, you'd call, you'd call 911. We need to be doing that for people in mental health crises too. Um, calling, calling their doctor if they already have one, their therapist. Calling the, the suicide hotlines and, and making sure we have the suicide hotline and you'll have it up there. Um, and I think, yeah, it is up there. Putting that in your phone and calling, calling it with them because those people are trained. And they're really helpful, even to call afterwards, after you've, you've met with the person, because they will help you to process through what you've just been through. It's traumatic for you, too. Okay? You're not actually an angel. <laughs> they, they, they can handle that. Um, you're a person, and you'll need your debrief as well. And then be there. Listen and, listen and understand their thinking. Don't judge as they already feel judged. Don't forget that. They need someone who cares, not someone who's going to reinforce their distortions. Help connect, as I just mentioned. And then stay connected. Studies have shown that the number of suicide deaths go down when there's follow-up. So please, even, even though it's hard, um, be sure to follow up because that could, again, save their life. One, just, just, just because they've told you once doesn't mean that they're not going to think about it again. So make sure to follow up. 
what not to say. You guys are such a good audience. You're, you're listening so intently, and I appreciate it. Um, so what not to say. I'm not assuming any of you would say this, but maybe you'll hear it from others, and then you can correct them. Pray more. Read these scriptures and call me in the morning. Um, these meds, essential oils, supplements, meal plan work for my cousin. <laughs> I'll bet they'll work for you too. Not helpful. Um, you shouldn't be depressed or anxious. What do you got to be worried about? Not helpful. Don't worry about the kids. They're resilient. I mentioned that. And you don't need counseling. That's a stigma. And I know, and I, and I get it, not every counselor is the perfect counselor. Um, that's why you want to go word of mouth. Find some great counselors in your area. Have a list handy for mentors and, and refer to that. Ask Pastor Mike um, because you want to know who you're referring to. There's some great Christian psychiatrists. I mentioned Dr. Amon's clinic. Those two psychiatrists in Walnut Creek are Christians. So you want to know who you're referring to, absolutely, but then you don't intervene. If they tell you, well, my, my counselor said this, and I don't know, you want to say, well, I think you need to check it out with them. You don't contradict what their treatment plan is um, because you want to support it. You're not the counselor. Finally, if your spouse says, um, can, can we go to couples counseling, um, just say yes. <laughs> just say yes. Um, people, on average, wait seven years before going to marriage counseling. Had I waited seven years before having brain surgery, I wouldn't be here. You know, any diagnosis. That's why marriage counseling isn't effective based on research. Did you know that? So, you know, with any of this, like I showed you the brain, why wait to do a good thing? Why not grow? Seven years going to go by anyways. Why not have a great marriage after seven years and be mentoring couples? Be one of the mentors. Don't wait to get healthy and stay in your stigma. And I know there's a lot of reasons why, and you can tell me about them later, tell someone else, but they're not good reasons, so I'm not going to buy it. <laughs> I'm just going to shoot straight. It's the kind of counselor I am. So where there's resistance, that's where the good stuff is, <laughs> meaning that's why. That's why you need to go, all those reasons why. Coping skills. This is the journey of a lifetime how you cope with hard things, and how you cope with adventure and making life so amazing. Consider your own coping patterns. So there's healthy coping and there's unhealthy coping. Healthy coping is what refuels you. You know, we all have our own list because we're all so unique. Refueling and restoring your body, mind, soul, um, animals, getting outside, reading, coffee. <laughs> That's mine. Um, act fun activities, food, places you enjoy, um, travel. What's life-giving for you? You're probably thinking of things right now, but you should write them down as I'm talking because your brain's getting activated and you're, you're probably feeling happy. Or you're, you might be being discouraged because you oh, haven't done that in so long. Then make it a goal. You know, even if it's 10 years out, make it a goal. And that, that would be amazing if you got there one day. 
seasons of the year um, that you can have some healthy coping. Seasons of life, it changes, right? It really does. But even through the seasons of life, we want to have a little bit of risk involved, a little bit of adventure. We don't want to get stuck in terms of coping. Unhealthy coping leads to regret, leads to some self-medication sometimes and justification, and it's desolate. It just is. It leaves you feeling alone and empty. So face that unhealthy coping and scoot up to the healthy coping. Make a list and have it be ongoing in your life. That's key, and that will keep your mental health um, thriving. So what if this is you? What if you're struggling today? I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here. Again, you're amongst the 51% of us. <laughs> this is part of your journey, but not the end. Not the end. So I, I would really like if the, the prayer partners that were up here at the beginning could, come, could make your way up. And there's a couple of mentors that will be in the back. John Clinton and Susan Belfield. They're actually going to be at the back at my table. And I'm going to explain this in a second. But if you're here and you're struggling and you want prayer around any of the things, maybe it's, maybe it's you and you're just feeling a little stuck. Maybe it's a loved one. And you just want some prayer around it. And I've, I've actually given a lot of tips for how to pray and what not to say. Right? So they know. They know anyways. I know these people. Um, but also, in the back is going to be a couple of mentors that will be able to walk you through with that cup of cold water, warm bread, and some listening ears that are going to be able to not let you go. Because we need that in our life to get you to that safe place if you're feeling like you're in crisis. This is a church that can love you through. They're not going to let you go. But it's also not going to put judgment on you, as you may have feared. So let them help you with your practical needs. Let them help you with your practical needs and help you get to the Lord if you've been struggling with how, how do I get to the Lord when, when I'm hurting. So come on up as I close in prayer or go out there if it's a deeper crisis. Lord, we thank you for who you are and how you want us to grow. Sometimes we feel like we're stuck in a ditch and we don't know who is capable of pulling us out. But Lord, you are and you provide, you provided for Elijah in miraculous ways. And Lord, we're just as important to you. So Lord, I pray for those individuals that you're speaking to right now, that you would nudge them and remind them how loved they are and how capable these people around them are of speaking life to them. You are their hope, and you have a plan for their life that is better than any barrage of darkness the enemy would feed them. Those thoughts are temporary, but your hope is eternal, 
You are the living hope in our lives. So Jesus, we thank you for what you've done in so many of our lives to give us that hope and that future that is beyond anything that we would have imagined when we were in those dark places. Thank you that we have overcome the enemy by the blood of the lamb, by the word of our testimony. You are good, Lord. Help us to be what you want us to be to each other and to the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.